This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf, and activists inundating social media with hashtag Free the Five messages. But the five are only symbols of a much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors, prompting an unprecedented awakening among China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, journalist and scholar Leda Hong Fincher argues that the popular, broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Hong Fincher illuminates both the difficulties they face and their joy of betraying Big Brother, as one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention. Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the Me Too movement, and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles, Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, my guests are the writers Marissa Brostoff and Andrea Longchu, and we, believe it or not, fashioned a discussion of Sex in the City and the X-Files into a jumping-off point from which we unraveled the tangled history of Marxism and queer theory. Cynthia Nixon, the Democratic Socialist, versus Miranda, the straight corporate lawyer, misrecognized as a lesbian. Feminism as consumption in Giuliani's New York. The remarkable resilience of heterosexuality. The Cold War's paranoic aftershocks. History's startling return. The alt-right's nostalgia for postmodernism. The takeover of reality by reality TV. Men with tinfoil hats decrying the deep state from the heights of power, and the possibilities of stitching socialism and queer politics together into a robust movement for human liberation, and much more. As you can see, or I suppose here, we have been keeping very busy at the dig. And this, of course, is the moment in my introduction when I pause to gingerly step through that fourth earbudded wall to speak directly to you, my beloved listeners, who make this podcast possible by kicking in financial support at patreon.com slash the dig. We do have swag for you. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 and we will mail you a copy of Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. And $20 or more entitles you to a shipment of a bunch of excellent books. But most of all, please contribute what you can because I can only do this for a living and pay my producer and for all manner of other things because you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. 
We don't pay while podcasts, so please take a quick moment now, if you haven't already, to contribute at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and you may have noticed that the piece on the left in immigration in N plus one that I mentioned I was writing hasn't come out yet. It indeed has not. That's because I'm working it into something longer and more expansive that reaches beyond the conjuncture of Nagelgate. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you. And here's Marissa Brostoff and Andrea Longchu. Marissa Brostoff is a writer and a doctoral candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York, who has contributed to publications like N Plus One, The New Republic, and Salon, and who currently edits the Slow Burn blog for the contemporary literature journal Post 45. Andrea Longchu is a writer and critic whose work has appeared in N Plus One, Art Forum, Book Forum, Boston Review, Chronicle of Higher Education, The New York Times, and elsewhere. Her first book, Females, A Concern, is forthcoming from Verso. Andrea Longchu and Marissa Brastoff, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The two of you have been spending a lot of time watching and processing the deeply complex significance of a lot of 90s television. (laughs) So first, thank you. You know, someone had to do it, and we figured it probably should be us. So Marissa, I want to start by asking you about the Sex and the City project, because it was your idea. And that idea was for you and Andrea and two others to watch Sex and the City, a show that defined the very vision of New York that one of its stars, Cynthia Nixon, just unsuccessfully ran against in her campaign for governor. What sort of knowledge were you hoping to extract from watching so many hours of this television? A project that pre-exists our involvement with it that my friend Sarah Chihaya started three years ago called The Slow Burn, and it's on an academic website called Post 45 devoted to contemporary literary and cultural analysis. And so the original conceit started as a kind of summer book club where she and three friends were reading Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels together and essentially blogging about it, but as literary critics and writers themselves. And it was a hit at least sort of within literary criticism world. And so it's gone on every summer since then. And this year I was asked if I wanted to run it and sort of immediately responded, sure, I would love to do it if it can be about getting a group of people to watch Sex and the City for the first time while following Cynthia Nixon on the campaign trail. I was really interested in what the vision of the show, which is 20 years old now, would look like watch in retrospect from this contemporary moment and the difference between the 90s moment that the show started and this moment, I think has been thrown into relief by the fact that Cynthia Nixon herself ran for governor on a sort of explicitly anti-neoliberal campaign, let's say, when the show you know, has been widely viewed as kind of an advertisement for the neoliberalization of New York. Andrea, what did you think heading into this or... Maybe better put, how did Marissa talk you into doing it? I think I was on the subway and I got a text from Marissa and she was like, hey, have you seen Sex in the City? And I was, I had to reply like, no. And I, I guess I think I felt bad about it because 
like when someone asks you if you've seen a television show and the answer is no, they're always like a little disappointed. And so I said, no, I haven't actually. And she goes, great. <laughs> One of the things that Marissa and I share is a deep and abiding love of television and of writing about television. So eventually I was roped into it. You share a love of television, Andrea, but it does seem like you have sort of hated this show. And <laughs> Marissa, <laughs> you, you write that Sex and the City is what what cultural studies types call a bad object. And for you, Andrea, it seems like it's been a bad object of sorts. What is a bad object as it is conventionally understood? And how has Sex in the City been a bad object if it has been for the two of you? When we say bad object in like a cultural studies context, we're talking about one that might be sort of from like a, a range of like middlebrow or lowbrow popular culture that sort of serious literary types might look down upon. We're also talking about objects that don't submit themselves easily to the kinds of analyses that make us feel good as critics. There's a very easy critique of Sex and the City, which, which Marissa already articulated. That it's an advertisement for neoliberal New York. And that it's these rich white ladies and there's no way they can afford these apartments and it's just this fantasy world. And all of that is sort of true. And by dint of being so true is also boring from, a, <laughs> I think, an intellectual perspective. Because you, you don't get to show off any of the impressive work of digging beneath the layers of mystified signification and said just all right there on the surface. No, you don't. And it's also very flattering to call anything neoliberal. It's like a, a word which is calibrated to reflect well on the utterer. And so I think that the task of looking at something like sex in the city is to see like, okay, so like, what else can we do with this? How do I as a critic show some fidelity to the complexity of like what I experience when I'm watching it? How do I come up with ways to relate to it that aren't just like bludgeoning it with critique tools? And how do I also like let myself be in the thrall of the object? And how do you go about approaching cultural objects with that kind of sense of uh, humility and I think some self-deprecation? And a lot of the work that we've done thus far that everyone in the group has been doing has made room for where the unflattering, messy, gross, petty feelings of the critic actually fit into the act of criticism. One way that critics use the term bad objects is as a way to talk about texts that maybe the critic herself feels attached to, maybe likes a lot, but feels a little guilty about it. So in a way, it's kind of like a literary criticism way of saying guilty pleasure. And I think Sex and the City is a guilty pleasure for, I mean, certainly a ton of people, including a, a ton of friends of mine. But I was interested in getting a group together who had not related to the show that way. So the four of us, and the other two people, by the way, are Ned Risley, who's a great writer and actor and comedian, and Lakshmi Padmanabhan, who is a critic and an academic. None of us had that kind of guilty pleasure relationship to it. We had all actually 
sort of not watched it. And so I think I wanted to see, would we wind up liking it more than we expected? Did we secretly want to like it all along? Like, how would we actually feel about it? And one sort of funny takeaway from the project so far, and all of us are still just in the middle of watching the show, but actually I think none of us really like it that much. I mean, I think we're all fascinated by it, but I don't think any of us have turned out to be like super fans. The show profoundly for many shapes certain models of American womanhood, particularly women in an urban professional mold. And one of the collaborators that you just mentioned, Lakshmi Padmanabhan, writes, quote, when we are asked to identify as a Charlotte or a Samantha or a Carrie, we are being given a model on which to build our individualized expectations of the good life. The twist, though, is that there isn't actually a wrong path for the women of SATC. They could all, in their own ways, participate in this utopian vision of New York, drinking their way through brunch and going shoe shopping to ease their woes, in their differently inflected performances of femininity as consumptive capitalism. This makes sense given the cultural history of the show. Emerging out of the mid-90s, SATC gave women narratives of belonging that could account for the anxiety of freedom from the heterosexual couple form and family ties while still reproducing these modes as desirable, if perpetually deflected or deferred, structures for their own lives. That passage stuck out to me because it seems to capture a big chunk of all four of your analyses of the show. And my question is, what was it about New York in the mid-90s that made it such a persuasive backdrop for this storytelling about femininity as consumptive capitalism? And what was it about capitalism in the mid-90s that made New York young professionals such a compelling backdrop against which to portray what femininity should look like? One of the things that is on display in Sex in the City is, in this particular moment, in the 90s, they're inheritors in some way of a certain kind of feminist success of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is that they are, quote unquote, independent women in their 30s. They're all successful, even though we don't really see them working most of the time. They have these wonderful white collar jobs. They're not financially dependent on men. They haven't been stuck in houses and made produce babies. The problem is that the program set forth in the late 60s and 1970s among radical feminists included not just transformation of the public sphere, of the economic structures, of policy and laws. There was also an aspect where the thing that had to be transformed was the the terms of intimacy between men and women, period. So you have in 1968, and Coates, the myth of the vaginal orgasm, which is in most practical terms, a plea for, can we please come? Like we've been having, <laughs> like seriously. And there are many other texts that even if they're wide ranging, they have a focus on the sexual and a focus on the terms of intimate relation. And that part didn't work. Heterosexuality remained more or less intact. There were like a couple of little adjustments made. Political lesbianism or lesbian separatism were both dismal failures. So what was left over was a real, if limited, and enormously raced and classed feminist success in the economic sphere that was not matched by the same kind of success in the sexual realm. And so these women 
in Sex and the City are living in this weird sort of limbo where their heterosexuality is still like hanging around and they're like not the kind of creatures that were meant to fit in heterosexuality. You have a great passage where you write, uh, feminists have made a real dent in the equal opportunity fight, at least for the foamy white cap on the American latte. But heterosexuality, (laughs) instead of being abolished as planned, has only gotten worse. Stocks are up. Romance is down. Marriage rates haven't been this low since the Depression. What's a new pair of $400 suede pumps without someone special to share them with? (laughs) Women have more power than ever, but they've never had less control. I mean, if Andrea is talking about kind of the sex side of the seductive vision that Sex in the City is selling us, the other side is the city. And that's a city where you can go window shopping for $400 Manola Blahniks, regardless of whether you can afford them. And I think the the context there, going back to your question about sort of why New York um, in this moment, is New York had been, since the 1970s, an icon of urban decay. It was a broke city. It was an epicenter of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Giuliani becomes mayor in 1994. That administration was famously trying to turn this city into a center for tourism and very explicitly set out to make New York into the kind of new capitalist utopia. And part of that is sort of fumigating places like Times Square of any sort of sexuality that's not entirely dictated by consumption. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I think is actually one of the most interesting parts of the show is that a sort of queer urbanist perspective would look at the 90s not at all as a halcyon moment in the history of sex and New York City, but as a moment when the porn theaters of Times Square that had been a site of all kinds of interclass and interracial contact were being shut down and turned into like the M&M store. It's exactly in this moment that Sex and the City, the show, comes in and says, no, this actually is an urban sexual utopia. It just looks like this extremely white, very like specifically Wall Street-centered landscape, right? Like all of the men, the women on the show date are investment bankers, basically. It's almost like they can't think of another job. Like sometimes it's an accountant or something, but like it's really about finance guys. While Marissa was talking, I was reminded of something that she texted me once when we were in the middle of this project. Wait, is dating just psychic accelerationism? Which I loved and which is fantastic and which I want to give full credit to Marissa for having said because it was amazing. Because the way that consumption works in the show is I think a good picture of sort of, if you buy this narrative that I've set, that in the 70s there was a, a move to revolutionize intimacy, it didn't work. What you get subsequently in the quote-unquote waves of feminism are sort of like, okay, so what do we do instead? What Sex in the City demonstrates really nicely is this focus on changing your individual life. Like when Carrie goes and buys $400 pumps because like big is being shitty to her. There's a, a psychic economy that becomes literal economy where consumption is what these women do instead of having better sex, instead of having better relationships, instead of getting the hell out of heterosexuality. So like, again, all of the critiques of sex in the city hold water, but it's important to remember that this 
commodification moment in feminism that Sex and the City is part of and which the fandom remains a part of now is born of a real genuine frustration in the history of feminism that was like a, a, a real theoretical and political knot that feminism hadn't figured out. And you can see these women on Sex and the City trying to untangle it and failing. Is the show in any way openly about that? Or is it entirely unselfconscious? I think that that's the real question. There's moments where what we are seeing is actually so over the top that it feels like it can't possibly not be satire. Like the episode we watched today when they're having this conversation about class. Yes, yeah, so this is a sort of amazing episode in season two where Miranda, Cynthia Nixon's character, she's a lawyer at a big corporate firm, and she has started dating Steve, a bartender. She's talking with the ladies about the issues that they're starting to have in, in their relationship and those issues are inflected by the professional status between them. And Charlotte, who is the most like waspy goody two-shoes of the group, whispers to the rest of the gang, well, you know, the thing about Steve is he's working class. Also, Miranda has to make it clear that this bartender boyfriend is not a downtown artist bartending to pay for his art. He's just right. a bartender. He's just a bartender. Yeah, exactly. And Carrie kind of gives Charlotte this look and says, Charlotte, we don't say working class anymore. Um, <laughs> but what's actually amazing about the scene is that the entire thing is taking place as all four of them are getting pedicures. And there's like a literal wink at the camera moment when one of them, I think Charlotte kind of looks down, like literally down at the woman who is giving her a pedicure. And that's almost like the glance at the camera that kind of says, yeah, but here we are, right? Like these are the actual conditions of even having this conversation. It's not a dumb show. Like it understands the world that it's representing very well and is, if anything, quite lacerating about it. The thing that makes it, I think, hard to watch is just that there's like no outside. It's just that's all there is. Andrea? I agree with everything Marissa said. Like it clearly is a satire, but it also like, it's not just that it knows it's a satire, it's that it knows that the satire isn't working. And I think this in part has to do with the fact that in the show itself, the characters are very undecided about whether the institution of heterosexuality is itself a satire. Like, they're not sure how ironically to inhabit this world that they cannot, as Marissa said, cannot conceive not inhabiting. But there's, there's like a clear desire to like ironize one's position within this structure Carrie's constant drive to taxonomize, oh, he's this kind of guy, he's that kind of guy, this is this kind of date, this kind of woman, as ridiculous as it is, because most of the time it seems like she's just making these phenomena up completely. <laughs> you know, like, what is a modelizer? And they all, like, have a conversation as if modelizer is a word that we all just, like, use in talking to each other meaning, of course, a person who exclusively dates models. So, like, the fact that taxonomy is possible means that there is this level of awareness 
that they know on some basic level is not allowed. There's something a little bit clandestine about these meetings they have with each other. Oh, he's one of those. But that doesn't lead to change. The whole point is that we have to figure out how heterosexuality works because otherwise it's not going to work. We have to like step in and intervene. Otherwise, these terrible men and the men are so, so fucking terrible. Otherwise, these terrible men are never going to make it work. They're never going to propose to us. We're all going to get old. We're going to be like rich and living on the Upper West Side and like incredibly sad and have empty, meaningless lives because we never got married to these men who were too stupid to know how to make being straight work. And so they've taken on the burden of doing all this extra legwork for men and in many cases for each other so that heterosexuality can become possible. The image I have in my mind is of like of someone trying to carry too many things at once. There's like a scrambling and a grabbing and they're constantly dropping little bits and catching them and brushing them off and hoping no one notices the crack. And there's something very frantic and manic about the role of irony and satire and quote unquote self-consciousness in the way the show works. Andrea, could you uh, read a passage of yours on the dim picture the show paints of men? It's a strength of the show, then, that it never wastes any of its runtime trying to persuade us that men are desirable, either individually or as a class. The men on the show are not expected to talk, and certainly not to make conversation. They are whisked through montages like politicians into SUVs, the music and narration huddling around them protectively. Even Mr. Big, who has the potential to be a full person, speaks in short, biscuity sentences, his burly eyebrows bench-pressing his forehead into a permanent state of aloofness, as if to say, what? (laughs) This could be because he fears chit-chat will damage his plague-gray upper lip, which appears to have died and been reanimated by an untalented witch, or because the halved pomegranate where his mouth should be is so wet that any sentence over four words will slide right out like a baby giraffe from its mother. (laughs) This is a man who opens up as easily as a blister pack. He looks like if skin were a person. He smiles like an onion. His eyes are offshore bank accounts. His dick energy is so small it could solve climate change. (laughs) That's amazing. What is the show getting at if it's consciously getting at something by portraying heterosexuality as so simultaneously horrible but inevitable? I just think it's because they're fucking bankers. (laughs) It's not even like they're hot but assholes or something. They're weirdly desexualized, I think, for a show that purports to be so much about the quest for good sex. It is like this window into a moment where straight men were simultaneously considered some kind of normative ideal and also had just nothing fucking going for them in terms of cultural appeal. Because the women in the show are babes. They're yeah, they're oh annoying, but like they're so cute and gorgeous and their characters and they're shot beautifully, like they dress beautifully, right? And so part of the kind of tragedy of it is like, it's this, I think like real nadir actually for... <laughs> heterosexual masculinity where there's like nothing. Andrea, I, I want you to read your, your, your catalog of uh, sex in the city male denigration. 
I try to focus on the plots, but I cannot. Each date is like celery, a caloric net loss. There's premature ejaculation guy, S&M guy, uncircumcised guy, divorced guy, married guy, widower guy, handyman guy, angry guy, photographer guy, wedding guy, punching guy, short guy, risky sex guy, foot fetish guy, too big guy, crabs guy, alcohol guy, bi guy. Like a big, stiff lighthouse on a sloppy, wet sea, there is John Slattery lending his charm and expressive forehead to politician guy, a.k.a. Golden Showers guy, but not that guy who does randomly lend his tawny thatched roof to a brief cameo alongside old rich guy. And then there is Mr. Big. Oh, Mr. Big. You are the only constant I have in this weary detention, the slightest curve of a season arc, the tiniest morsel of a purpose. But still, you are an old meal, a slice of tilapia, a lonely, tremendous badger. You are a cement truck in the morning, leaves trapped in the gutter in autumn, solid lard in the small of a saucepan. You are any film about boxing. <laughs> you are a plain bagel, a meat market, a farm pond, a grease fire. You are socks with sandals. You are a jar of olives. You are a neatly folded used napkin. You are the flu, an old orange, and a pair of sunglasses. You are a casserole. You are dead wood on the beach. You are a rash, a tire, a drought, an eel. You are a haircut with a haircut. You, <laughs> sir, are a piece of paper. The show is pervasively populated by men that it's hard to imagine even the most man-hungry women on earth wanting to ever, ever fuck. And there's this related theme, which is sort of the temptation of the possibility that men might be superfluous, but the possibility is constantly dashed and men and heterosexuality are consistently reaffirmed as inevitable. And there are a few themes along these lines that I'd like to to talk about. One is about Cynthia Nixon's character, Miranda. Lakshmi writes, Miranda often plays the closeted queer with an open secret. She is the only short-haired, pantsuit-wearing representation of anything resembling Butch for the first season, and a number of scenes address her sexuality with almost campy delight. Early in the season, she is mistaken for a lesbian and continues the charade. And there's another episode, Lakshmi points out, where Miranda points out the obvious, that men aren't necessary for marriage, sexual reproduction, pleasure, or even conversation. She is, rather, in love with her vibrator. Are viewers supposed to think that Miranda was gay? It's a universe with really different sexual politics than the ones that we sort of inhabit today. I think it's really weird now to look at Miranda, who to me just reads as like such a cute dyke, to be told by the show to read her as instead an unhappy straight woman. Who's coincidentally mistaken for being a lesbian. Right. She gets set up with like a very cute dyke who who is one. And then it becomes this whole charade where Miranda goes along with her misrecognition and pretends that this woman is in fact her date or her girlfriend in order to get invited to her like Republican Upper East Side boss's house for a dinner party because she's trying to get ahead in her firm. And it's a she's coupled up because the right. episode is about how 
everyone values couples more. Yeah, exactly. The actually kind of smart thing that the episode is doing is talking about the way that in this moment, it's becoming increasingly acceptable to be out as gay, but only within kind of very narrow confines. So this is the kind of phenomenon that queer theorists would describe as like homonormativity, where if you're a particular kind of usually white, usually upper class, partnered, uh, a good citizen gay, then you're allowed <laughs> to operate within social worlds that previously would have been closed off to out queer people. But in this moment, what qualifies as keeping you kind of in or out of the proverbial dinner party is actually changing. And so what's more threatening, according to the episode, is not that she's maybe gay, but that she's single. Am I correct that that in this episode, Miranda does try making out with this woman and it just doesn't work for her? Yeah, there's this moment at the end of the episode where they're like leaving this dinner party and Miranda finally turns and kisses her in the elevator. And then she kind of looks down disappointedly and just says, definitely straight. And that moment, I think, too, is it's hard to make sense of as a viewer because they're really cute together. Like they have chemistry, right? And that's kind of a rare thing on this show. So you're watching <laughs> it and going like, okay, I get like if you say so. But what we're being told is not necessarily what we're looking at. The impossibility of, of women being liberated from men via being lesbians is sort of paralleled by the representation of, of vibrators as dangerously independence endowing. Andrea, can you read a, a, a passage on this? Actual bursts of deviance are militantly policed. When Charlotte, usually the idealist, drops off the map after purchasing a rabbit vibrator, Carrie and Miranda burst into her apartment FBI style, the camera tailing them in one long handheld shot set to electric organ and surf guitar, and then they take away the sex toy which Charlotte literally just bought for herself with her own money. Miranda slipping it into her purse like a dirty cop planning to get high later. It's a brief genre spoof executed as if in acknowledgement that the show's typical zippy tone wouldn't be able to conceal the magnificent cruelty of the act. No greater crime could there be in this militantly heterosexual Gotham than to stay home and feed your pussy. <laughs> so it, it seems to me that the vibrator is dangerous precisely for the same reason that Miranda being a lesbian is excluded as a possible plot line in the show because both represent the possibility that these dumb men who the women in the show organize their lives around could be deemed irrelevant to them. It's one of the best Charlotte episodes, actually, because she's so unlike herself. Charlotte is usually the mooning princess in the tower waiting to be saved by her white knight like the most traditional and wants to take her husband's name and wants to have kids and all of these things. She's this like whole other person comes into being when she has this vibrator. And it's like noted that it's a rabbit vibrator. Mm -hmm. So like part of the point is that it's like not just penetration, but also clitoral stimulation. 
She's like not responsible enough to have it. Miranda gets to keep it. Miranda already has a vibrator. Miranda's vibrator is referenced later when like her traditional housekeeper tries to get rid of her vibrator. Like it's, it is acknowledged actually as something that could be like, okay, though again, we're talking about Miranda in that case. It's too much of like a burst of of freedom for Charlotte because it it's obvious that men are mechanically obsolete. And the problem is that like it's a show that already knows from the get-go that men are obsolete and so like is really not I don't, I don't know but I, I don't I don't think it's invested in showing you that men actually have a purpose it's simultaneously like misandrous somehow in the the service of patriarchal heteronormativity Absolutely. Absolutely. The problem in this case, the problem is that sociality seems to require men in some kind of very basic and not even human way. Like they don't actually have to be people. Charlotte isn't going out is the problem. She's like removed herself from society. She's like canceling on her friends. She's like not showing up to work. It's removing her from the city, like it's just sex and not the city. And not work and not her profession. Right. And not her profession. She stopped being a good New Yorker, hmm. which is extremely important to these characters and is almost as important as getting married is being a good New Yorker. Hmm. You know, Charlotte is Times Square and Carrie and Miranda are Giuliani. Like she needs to be cleaned <laughs> up for the sake of the city. Hmm. Not because like there's some great man out there who's better. They know that the vibrator is better. Everyone knows the vibrator is superior. That's just not the issue. And so it has to shift the frame of like valuation from what would actually be good sex because if that were the only criterion, obviously you wouldn't need men to something else in which men become, even if extremely tangentially necessary to the way that sociality works, the way that the city works, the way that citizenship works. Yeah, I think that's such a great read, Andrea, and brings up a point about the show that is really important, which is that going back to your original question, Dan, about why New York in this 90s moment as neoliberal playground, right? Part of the novelty is that the show is really telling us that you can and should be a professional woman who fucks around, but then also eventually gets married and also crucially stays in the city. So there's a, a lot of like mockery of women who get married and move out to the, so, Hamptons. To the, Hampton, to the Hamptons or to Westchester or to the suburbs. Right. And that's, I think, a real tension is that these women are shown as being forced into this kind of choice between stability, which equals marriage, which equals finding a man who can support them, right? That's really key. I mean, they are all career women in different ways, but to different extents, they all still need men as just like literal financial support system. The task before them is to figure out a way to like pin down the guy and move into a kind of realm of stable wealth without actually having to leave the city. You really can have it all. Like you can have the city and you can have your stable marriage and kids that's like always being deferred, but that you're still supposed to want. I think on a very basic level, the men are like the MacGuffins that get you to 
the restaurants and the clubs and the bars, basically just an excuse for them to go out all the time, which they do go out all the time. It's like none of them can cook. Is that right? Am I remembering that? And it's like worn as a badge of pride that they can't cook because it's like, look how far I am from the domesticity of some imagined version of the 50s. I think on some level, it is as simple as this. Men are there because they provide a certain gravitational pull that like moves you out of your apartment into the city, but not because there's anything valuable about them or because they're like interesting people or because you can have good conversation. It's just that we have to go where the boys are because that's actually like the cool place to be. There's so many episodes that open with narration from Carrie being like, so we were at such and such, the hottest new restaurant in the Lower East Side. The whole thing is this one running sort of like Yelp review of like (laughs) the best new hot places, bars, clubs. Very specifically Manhattan. Like other boroughs are a joke. I mean, the show also, it should be said, is super racist. Like, it's not just that it's very white. It's that it is explicitly (laughs) and regularly very racist. Outer boroughs just become the site of this exotic exploration where, like, Samantha will go to, like, get her tarot cards read in Queens and there's literally chickens running around. The crisis in heterosexuality that the show evinces, if not really consciously reflects upon. Are we in the same sort of crisis today or have we emerged into a different, if maybe similarly horrible era? Speaking as a cis girl who has generally dated cis boys, to me, things feel like really different from what you see on the show. In my entire dating life, for all its ups and downs, I don't think that I have ever been asked until like well into a relationship anything about whether I wanted to get married and have kids. It just literally has not fucking come up. And I think that that is sort of historically novel. I want to sort of appreciate that. (laughs) I mean, I want to like, I want to be aware of how weird that is. And I think we are actually in a, somewhat novel situation where the scripts of heteronormative reproduction just like ain't what they used to be. And I guess this is honestly where a little bit of my perverse optimism comes from. There actually just is such a crisis around that script that I think everybody is going to have to kind of figure it out. Andrea, do you have a more pessimistic retort? As it happens, I do have a more pessimistic take than Marissa, which is again, our dynamic. Um, (laughs) I think it's absolutely true that heteronormativity ain't what it used to be. I'm wary of saying that because norms aren't functioning the way that norms like to narrate themselves as functioning, it means that they don't apply. I think it is important to remember that this is exactly what the women on Sex and the City are telling themselves in the pilot. They say, the old heterosexuality is over. Like it's it's definitive. They're actually like, they're standing there looking into heterosexuality's grave. In hindsight, it's very easy to say, well, no, they actually weren't out. They didn't make it. I don't disagree at all that things are different, but I think if anything, Sex and the City is a testament to the fact that straightness works 
like no way you could have possibly imagined it would have. It is being held together with chicken wire and crossed fingers. <laughs> and there's so much that can happen under the umbrella of heterosexuality that does not sound like heteronormativity. Because the truth is, it is not possible to be a straight person in like a strict sense. It is too narrow a target to hit. You have a better chance of shooting proton torpedoes into the Death Star than actually having heterosexual sex the way that it is imagined to work. What this means, though, is not that there's no such thing as heterosexuality, but that even heterosexuality is not populated by heterosexuals. The performances fall short. The performances fall short, and there's always a looseness to it. Its coherence does not actually come from any kind of like empirical unity. It comes from the strength of an optimism, among other things. Now, I do, again, I do agree with Marissa that things are very different. And like, if you were to make the same show today, I guess the point is you wouldn't, you would never make the same show today, not because we're woker or better, but because the television priorities are in a different place. Well, you might make Girls or Broad City. Right. Like there's the obvious sort of inheritors of the Sex in the City format that are no longer Sex in the City. It's like gender in the outer boroughs. Um, <laughs> but w what happens on something like Broad City, where Alana Glazer famously says something like, in the future, we're all going to be caramel and queer. This very like blasé nonchalance with respect to like some sort of imagined post-racial utopia as well. And again, it's like sort of a satire, sort of not. And so like, you're not sure, like, is that supposed to be ironic or not? But I do think today there is, I do think the general crisis holds. The fact that heterosexuality is intractable, it can't be solved through stick to that remains the same. Me Too is its own kind of manifestation of that. Again, a litigation, not just of harassment and abuse, but of bad sex and what do we do with bad sex. So like the Aziz Ansari story, for instance, or Chloe Dykstra and Chris Hardwick, a number of these stories that have come out in Me Too testify to an ongoing crisis in heterosexuality. So on, on a broad level, I would say it is the same. I do think, though, that if we're talking about urban subcultures in Brooklyn, in the New York area, I think there is a cognizance that heterosexuality really is untenable and we have to get away from it, whether or not the various strategies that are then undertaken consciously or not to get out of it are successful, I think is an open question. So like the gender binary, my generation is supposed to have a more fluid approach to gender and not be as concerned about rigid categories of male and female doesn't change the fact that something more or less resembling heterosexuality often is still occurring in those cases. You know, so there was a this piece in the New York Times about like LGBTQ parents who are like not using mom and dad anymore, trying to come up with other forms, other like differently gendered forms of parental address. And for some reason, instead of picking like, I don't know, like a dyke couple or something like that, they picked this couple, which is a woman and an AMAB non-binary person, AMAB being assigned male at birth, who, because there were pictures in the New York Times, you could see was like still pretty much presenting in a man kind of way, who I'm sure gets misgendered all of the time on the street, whom one would see and assume was a man. And, you know, the article was about how this parent was trying to come up with a different term 
that wasn't dad. And it was something that like I remember discussing with my friends at the time when this thing came out, because there was a there was some degree of bad faith involved in in the idea that this was not heterosexuality. I have to like be very precise in what I'm saying here. I'm not saying it's a heterosexual couple. I'm not saying that person was in fact a man, but the truth is things like gender and sexuality are mostly given to you by other people. They are not things that reside somewhere between your heart and your liver. They are genres of social existence that are gifted to you. It's, it's not something you can exchange for. You, it has to be like freely given to you. And in that sense, the whole getting out of heterosexuality thing is a much more difficult question than just what are the gender identities of the two people in the relationship. It's to what extent are they participating in or beneficiaries of, or just aesthetically of a piece with something called heterosexuality. That question can be asked of any couple, including same-sex couples, and has been asked of same-sex couples, as long as there have been same-sex couples. And that's a much harder question. Marissa, when you're writing about Cynthia Nixon's affirmation of being a socialist, and prior to that, her affirmation of being a lesbian, and her pushing back against a sort of coming out narrative on both fronts, you ask, why can't it be a choice? And you're drawing a parallel between the label socialist and whatever the concrete politics that signify are supposed to be standing in for that aligns with socialism on the one hand and the label gay or lesbian and whatever underlying sexuality that is supposed to be indexing. What I was trying to get at is actually a kind of assumption that has existed for a long time within queer critique that has been very critical of coming out narratives that the coming out narrative kind of regiments and and makes legible the total messiness of anyone's experience of sexuality and gender in ways that ultimately do more to kind of solidify a kind of recognizable rights-bearing gay liberal subject than they do to actually liberate anyone into some kind of queer existence that you would actually want. And I think that that critique is really right and has been really important over the past couple of decades, especially in understanding phenomena like pinkwashing, where states like the U.S. or Israel will say, here in our, you know, open-minded country, you're allowed to be gay, unlike always very pointedly, like those Muslims over there, right? And it's this incredibly cynical appropriation of gay politics for the spread of American empire. So queer critique has been really good about pointing all of that out and trying to understand ways that queerness is being appropriated by power and trying to cut that off at the past. All of that said, I think that the echo between Nixon more or less explicitly saying, both when she not quite comes out as a lesbian in 2004 and not quite comes out as a socialist in 2018, well, why can't it be a choice? What that 
kind of covers up is the fact that there actually are really good historical reasons that it's not always a choice. The closet is still really in force. It's not just something that we kind of move beyond and now only need to worry about these coercive liberal attempts to push us out of it. What is it that people want out of someone like Cynthia Nixon in both of those cases in terms of expecting her to have some sort of account of her period in the closet as both a socialist and a lesbian? I think what people want is a a kind of account of something going on behind the scenes that couldn't be acknowledged before and now can be. And in the case of coming out as gay or as queer, that account often is supposed to fall into this kind of genre where, you know, kind of once you were lost, now you're found. Like, you couldn't acknowledge your aberrant desires, and now you can become whole or something. And I think the socialist case is complicated because part of the pushback that Nixon understandably got from leftists, and specifically DSA, asked to endorse her candidacy is that it seemed opportunistic. And I think there's no way around the fact that it was. Whether or not it's okay that it was, I think actually is the question. But for people to have said, hey, we've been doing this work for a really long time, and now you just kind of showed up and decided that this is your thing, do you even know what it is? Like, it's not a bad question. But it also leads to the question of what is a concrete democratic socialist platform that short of full worker control of the means of production entails, if not Cynthia Nixon's platform. Right, exactly. And that's why ultimately, I think that it's totally fair that the question was asked. But I also think we don't actually know what democratic socialism means right now, right? Like, that's the whole fucking question. And any illusion that that has already been decided, and the only kind of orientation that a political figure can have to that is to sign on or not sign on, I think is a totally unrealistic understanding of where we're at right now. What does it actually look like in the absence of a party formation and in the absence of like a mass social movement to articulate oneself politically against the dominant order? Well, I want to ask you specifically about that question in the context of, or as it relates to commies on the one hand and queers on the other, because you write, during the Red Scare in the United States, commies and queers, in Senator Joseph McCarthy's not-so-affectionate phrase, were thrown together into one big closet. And you write that that prompted a divergence between socialist and queer politics over the years. It's all of these debates that have been running for a long time now, like Marx is saying queer theory doesn't take political economy seriously enough. Queer theory is saying Marxists are ignoring sexuality as a valid category for analysis. But my question is, maybe there's, there's actually a much longer history that we need to look at to understand where those fights are coming from. And that actually... Perhaps it is not that these are two really different political orientations that need to hash it out, but were kind of historically created together. 
the architects of the Cold War, both people like Joseph McCarthy, but also people in the Truman administration that McCarthy was going after, they clearly hated communists, but it's no small thing that the way that they framed that hatred and fear was in terms that were extremely persistently sexualized and homophobic. The lavender scare is how it's sometimes been referred to, this purge from the State Department of all of these suspected homosexuals, right at the same time and very much parallel to the expulsion of suspected communists. Basically, like, the moment when the kind of proto-gay rights movement is forming in the U.S., some of the main people who started these organizations, like the Mattachine Society, groups that said, like, maybe being a homosexual is actually, like, a minority position that can actually, like, have a politics around it, right? Like, that was a huge deal in that moment. And the people who were coming up with that were largely people coming out of the Communist Party who could not be out in the Communist Party. It's not like the Communist Party was, like, some awesome fucking, like, bastion for out queerness, but it was people coming out of it using this actually kind of, like, language around class consciousness to articulate a politics around sexuality. And over the course of this McCarthyist crackdown, whatever possibilities existed in that really got smashed. Like, everyone just kind of retreated. Communists got more homophobic. Queers got more anti-communist. Like, it just was, I think, a really classic kind of, like, divide and conquer. And stitching the two back together, what do you see the possibilities being? So I think, like, queer theory has had its own kind of romance with Marxist kind of utopian politics for a long time now. It's not like I'm, like, the first person to come up with this or something. But I think that queer theory or queer critique still has of kind of trepidation with the idea of mass social movement. I think there's still an idea that queer politics means working with the the kind of small self-selecting social group as the like basic political unit. Like if if not individualist, at least definitionally marginal against some yeah. mass norm that is not good. Exactly, exactly. And I think that maybe instead of even saying, let's look back and say, well, that was all just like neoliberal all along. What I want to say is just I think that we have a different set of political possibilities right now. And maybe there's a way that some of the really incredible stuff that has come out of queer critique in terms of like really trying to think through questions of desire and where does it come from and how do our politics get performed? I'm so curious to know like, what a actually mass socialist movement would look like if it could be queered, to use the kind of like old school queer theory lingo. Andrea, Marissa has told me that she was not, in fact, explicitly thinking about your argument in the N plus one essay on liking women when she was thinking through these questions about naming your desire, both in terms of sexuality and in terms of socialist politics. I was thinking about it enough that you can say I was thinking about <laughs> okay. it. You were steeped in it. Totally. I was totally Marissa thinking about is always that. thinking about I, that essay. That's exactly. It's all I think about. <laughs> so that's an essay that makes an argument, I think, along similar lines about ways to think about being trans in terms of 
desire. Can you lay out that argument in just capsule form? So that essay emerges out of my own experience of having never been able to tell apart a desire for women from a desire to be a woman. And this has made it difficult for me, and I think difficult for others to articulate being trans, because we have like a kind of mainstream orthodox position that like exists now that we're all supposed to hold, which is the gender identity model, where it's just like, it's what you always were and always are and always will be. And you just come out. My experience was, I mean, so there's, there's a basic problem in transition, which is that if you want to be something, it makes it sound as if you're, you're not that thing. Like if I want to be a woman, it sort of implies that I'm not a woman. So to say that my transness is constituted by a desire to be a woman is riskier than what is now the sort of typical political pablum about how, oh, trans women are women and they've always been women, they always will be. That was one leg of that essay. I was generally trying to think through some of these questions by posing the question of desire more broadly in the history of feminist politics, particularly since the 70s, and I think through political lesbianism, and I think through the scum manifesto. And one of the larger conclusions that I come to is that desire cannot be forced to conform to political principle. I say in the essay, you could sooner give a cat a bath. <laughs> this has proved a, a fairly controversial claim, actually. Especially vis-a-vis -vis the LRB essay on the right to sex and incel extremist violence. Absolutely, because it seems like there's a lot of kinds of desire that are politically bad. There's a lot of undesirable desire out there, including things like Elliot Rogers and incels and racism and we could go on and on and on. One of the distinctions that I've, I've had to make in the wake of writing on liking women is that when I say that transness expresses the force of a desire, that's different than saying that it's a choice. And I, I have a little wedge between choice and desire, not because I think it can't be a choice. I mean, I think that's like, that's an important line of thought to be followed. And actually right around the same time, Masha Gessen had a piece in the New York Review of Books, I think, that really was pursuing this question of choice. Because this whole kind of mainstream acceptance of gay people is very problematically premised on the notion that they can't help it. Right, exactly. And the the critiques that Marissa was talking about earlier of the coming out narrative are often intertwined with critiques of the born this way narrative is what it gets called. So you were born this way, you can't help it, you're, you're just get, being gay is who you are. And the choice model can be a really tempting riposte to that because it, it says, look, who I am doesn't have to hinge on who I was before, like it's possible to deviate from the scripts that have been set out before me. The reason that I prefer desire to choice is that it can have all of the sort of historylessness of a choice without any of the freedom. <laughs> so the thing about desire is that if you wake up and you want something you've never wanted, even if you've never, ever wanted it before in your entire life, the subjective experience of desire is such that all desire might as well have existed forever. That's how desire sinks its teeth in you as a subject. Like when I say being trans is a matter of desire, I can be talking about how 
I didn't know when I was a kid that I was trans. And at a certain point I started wanting it. And once I started wanting it, like that was not because I made a choice to start wanting it. It was because like it befell me just as being born into it might've befallen me. So it has a relatively high level of non-negotiability or at least what I tend to paint somewhat provocatively as, as non-negotiability or non-consensuality to desire. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons. City of Segregation documents 100 years of struggle against the enforced separation of racial groups through property markets, constructions of community, and the growth of neoliberalism. This movement history covers the decades of work to end legal support for segregation in 1948, the 1960 civil rights movement and CORE's effort to integrate LA's white suburbs, and the 2006 victory, preserving 10,000 downtown residential hotel units from gentrification, enfolded with an ongoing resistance to the criminalization and displacement of the homeless. Andrea Gibbons reveals the shape and nature of the racist ideology that must be fought in Los Angeles and across the United States if we hope to found just cities. City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles, by Andrea Gibbons, out now from Verso Books. It seems to me that maybe getting rid of choice, as you propose, does not mean eliminating contingency, but rather just relocating it somewhere else. And maybe thinking about this question, not just in terms of of trans identity and, and queerness, but more broadly political terms, that the place where that contingency gets relocated away from choice is somewhere far more materialist and something that we might be more comfortable with as as leftists actually than than a choice model and just as liberatory. I think it goes back to this question of just like what is politically articulable in any particular moment. And I'm happy to be like a totally like hardline kind of Marxist about like understanding what determines that social context. Um, But yeah, that there's determinants out of our control to a large extent of what can be said and be heard and matter in any given moment about how we describe what we want. And one way in which we have agency is actually trying to find the sites of contestation where there's weak points in the ideological structure and you exploit those and try to figure out what you can say today that you couldn't say yesterday. Marissa, I, I want to shift gears and talk a bit about what you were watching in the 1990s, which which wasn't Sex and the City. It was The X-Files. In this N plus one essay you wrote about The X-Files, you said it in the context of a 1990s that you describe as this post-Cold War moment that's somehow found itself bereft of triumph and is instead submerged beneath this thick liqueur of of unfocused, pervasive paranoia. Could you read a passage from that essay on the, quote, biosphere that the X-Files were born into? Something had happened and we could not remember what it was. 
In Missing Time, a 1981 bestseller that helped establish the conventions of the alien abduction memoir, ufologist Bud Hopkins explained that evidence of an extraterrestrial visitation often took the form of precisely this sort of mysterious gap in experience. Abduction was a way of describing rupture in its purest form, a literal wrinkle in time. I could relate. It wasn't like I had a better excuse for being such an old-fashioned girl. But I was not alone. In the 1990s, anyone could be abducted, though the aliens seemed to have a thing for white girls and a way of making men feel like white girls even though they weren't. Weird syndromes coagulated everywhere. The deeper in the suburbs they appeared, the more mysterious they seemed, like signs from another world. A post-war infrastructure of office buildings and tract homes designed to cordon off the white middle class from the contagious city turned out to be built from noxious materials that made people sick. Asbestos, formaldehyde, and 4-phenylcyclohexene, or new carpet smell, dewed up in moldy corners beneath the level of perception. Veterans returning from Iraq reported a rash of problems, memory loss, respiratory trouble, that they attributed to chemical exposure. When no physical marker could be found for Gulf War syndrome, mass psychogenic illness, a new term for hysteria, was extended for the first time to men. The show was also a quasi-respectable cousin of Jerry Springer at a time when reality, too, was remaking TV. In this sense, the series wasn't science fictional at all, but took place in a world just like our own, where women being poisoned by their microwaves floated around with Lyndon LaRouche supporters and AIDS denialists and 12-year-old ex-communists in dubious pursuit of a history of the present. There they were, serially archived on a single flashing screen from the Loch Ness Monster and the Chupacabra to the JFK assassination and the defamation of Anita Hill. In the last years of the 20th century, this solar system of conspiratorial thinking was where the postmodern condition lived its best life. You could find yourself in cozy exile there, social theorists said, if you tried too hard to picture techno-scientific global capitalism and your brain broke. I'd barely begun to try, and mine already had. On the X-Files, the United States government was a shell company for extraterrestrial interests in our GDP of biopolitical slop. Neurons and wombs, oil fields and cornfields, radio towers and internet cables, Nazis and bees. The Cold War wasn't really over, but it had also never really begun. The whole thing having been, as Thomas Pynchon put it in Gravity's Rainbow 20 years earlier, a front for the war of multinational technology cartels against everyone else. Now, in the 90s, world historical conflict farted in its fresh grave as hoax and scandal filled the deregulated airwaves. Cable news proved such a deadly carrier of subliminal messages that in one X-Files episode, people in a DC suburb watch TV pundits weigh in on Bosnia and are hypnotized into homicidal rage against their loved ones. In other words, paranormal activity caused by US alien collusion manifested on a day-to-day basis as unaccountable violent symptoms bugging out the collective sensorium. In the parlance of the show, this sort of thing was an X-File, a local mystery with national implications that the federal government didn't want to solve. And you're reading both the X-Files and Sex and the City zeroed in on something deeply uncanny in the 1990s, something below the surface that 
would only become fully manifest in your reading years later. How is it that two shows that were so different were getting at something similar about the same historical moment? They're both extremely anthropological. This is something that I talked about in the X-Files piece, the kind of encyclopedic form of the show. It's every conspiracy theory. It's every monster from every tradition all kind of showing up parallel to each other. And our heroes on the show become these kind of anthropologists who are picking their way through these totally disparate kinds of paranormal phenomena and like figuring out how they all work together. And I think Sex and the City actually does the same thing. I think Carrie describes herself as a sexual anthropologist in an early episode, except it's men that are being sorted. And like the men the on the show, aliens. the original aliens, yeah. And because the men on Sex and the City are so monstrous, you can also really think of them as being this kind of compendium of different kinds of monstrosity. And actually somebody tweeted um, a couple weeks ago that Sex and the City and the X-Files have the same monster of the week structure where like every time you tune in, you just find out about a totally new manifestation of really grotesque evil. So what was it about the 90s that made it so inevitable that the new carpet smell that pervaded the decade would inevitably kill us or make us crazy? There's just so much cultural data and no one knows what to do with it. And so you're concocting like larger and larger theories to try and make it fit together But the frustrating part is that in television terms, the mythology arc just never quite holds up. A minute ago, Marissa, you said one of the characteristics of the X-Files is that you have aliens and also vampires and also mutants and also ghosts that all coexist in the same universe. I, I guess I would suggest maybe that like it was a show experimenting with not taking place in the same universe. I mean, it's notable enough that like when you look at episodes that are like not about aliens on Wikipedia, there will always be a sentence that says this was a monster of the week episode and was not connected to the series larger mythology. And I think there's there's an experimentation with like, what if there isn't a bigger picture at all? Mm -hmm. In, In your piece, you suggest that this could have to do with what it means to live after the end of history, which Sex in the City and the X-Files seem to have mm-hmm. greatly in common is that they're happening out of historical time. And so like you can't actually have like Marvel Cinematic Universe level of like connection and coherence. Things just sort of happen and then they happen again, but differently. And it doesn't actually amount to a world like there's a a weirdly small amount of world building in the x-files as compared to say if it was on now it's a moment where the soviet union has collapsed but it's collapsed based on contradictions internal to the soviet union so the u.s wins but without any sort of actually triumph that speaks to who we are as americans to our credit and so history is over and depending on one's perspective, you either lose a coherent alternative to American capitalism or a unitary enemy of American capitalism. Either way, there's just sort of total fragmentation. Yeah, exactly. And I talked a bunch in the X-Files piece about 
the kind of haunting of the Cold War and the show, but also how I felt weirdly haunted by the Cold War as just like a weirdo tween. And the X-Files became this way of trying to make stuff that was, I guess, like haunting me into a more politically like legible. What Andrea just referred to as an attempt at world building. Yeah, exactly. An attempt at world building. And I think that actually the show works like that for a lot of diehard fans. Like even if the show itself wasn't a fully realized world, it gave, I think, a lot of people a sort of like compendium of cultural objects that you could build a world out of. To say like what a character says in one of the best episodes of The X-Files, he's like this kind of quintessential like loser living in his parents' basement or whatever, who admits that actually he desperately wants to be abducted by aliens. Mm. Yeah, I think there's there's a sense in which like the, the first season of The X-Files is structured around the character they eventually start calling Deep Throat showing up and sort of dropping Mulder a couple crumbs. And it's never clear why, at least in the course of that season, it's never clear why he can't give him more information and why he's willing to talk to him about things only after Mulder has discovered them when he could have just told Mulder about them from the get-go. And I think there's there's maybe a sense in which the whole show was deep-throating, as it were, mm-hmm. as far as like a fan experience. And maybe like to its credit, the refusal to world build was like a practice of allowing the fans to do the building like Mm. you connect the dots Mm -hmm. here are some bits and pieces and like I would tell you more but but I might get shot and so (laughs) like you have to do the work of piecing together a narrative and whatever you piece together like we won't be able to confirm or deny whether that's true so like it allowed the fandom to take on the cast of conspiracy itself Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly how I felt watching it as a kid. The question would be whether history is ever anything other than a conspiracy theory. Like historical meaning is is always pieced together in basements and behind (laughs) closed blinds and like the lone gunman right history in some sense. The three conspiracy theory nuts that like Mulder goes to every so often when he's like stumped. And this not just to like cast dispersions on historians or something, because the the thing that history and a, and a conspiracy theory share is a leap that is unjustified by what is empirically given. And that leap is just called an interpretation. Well, I was going to say in, in the X-Files, we would call it faith yeah. or belief. The question of like being a believer, which runs throughout, are you a believer or are you not? Like that Scully gets associated with her cross necklace. There's a discourse on faith and the status of faith with respect to like the possibility of a full story, the possibility of things making sense. I want to turn to what happens next. There's this period where there's no official deep meaning to the world. And so people are looking for that meaning everywhere. And Marissa... You write that during that period, history, it seemed, was something that happened to other people. But then everything changed. Can you read a a passage about what happened after the 1990s when there was an arrival of a, quote, new order of things, which eliminated shadows and with them an entire methodology for seeing in the dark? 
The world felt strange in the late 20th century when politics congealed into fandom, like being haunted by ghosts. Now that fandom on the right has melted back into politics, it feels psychotic, like being stalked by monsters or chased by cartoon frogs. When we get accustomed to the political unconscious becoming conscious, the imperceptible perceptible, we say we are woke. The Nazis say red-pilled. It is uncanny to remember a time when we spoke only through the things we liked and wore, like looking back at cultists who think they have outgrown the swaddling of history, but in fact simply will not speak the names of their devils and gods. When alt-right thinkers complain about a specter they call postmodernism, I wonder if they miss it. So you're, you're arguing that the postmodern condition was destroyed one thing that seems really characteristic of the times we're living in right now um, is that sometimes, bizarrely, everything seems to be exactly as it appears. And I think that that is really a kind of inversion of what used to be called the postmodern condition in which history could never speak for itself, like could only be identified through these kind of buried cultural traces. And I think that it's not that now we have some kind of like unmediated relationship to history and we actually can see exactly what's going on. But I think that one thing that we probably could say is that what feels possible now is to read the news and say, I don't necessarily know what this means, but it sure fucking means something. And we like better figure out ways to respond and deal with like a future that is incredibly uncertain. So th there's this moment of history that existed before where we have both this incredible certainty in the stasis and direction of things, but that leads, as you discuss, into a certain form of deflected and profound dread and paranoia. And then that moment breaks. And instead, what we're dealing with now, instead of this sort of diffuse and fragmented dread, is the reemergence of literal fascists and literal socialists. And Donald Trump, as president, a cartoon character, figure who is just profoundly unfunny. What's the point of rupture between these two? Is it the war on terror? Is it the financial crisis? Um, those, <laughs> yes, sure. Yes, that's yes. right. <laughs> as well as very obviously the 2016 election. One thing about Trump that just is so mind boggling is that I like have these moments where I'm like, how did I like accidentally become a television critic this year like what why am i doing that that i'm like well because you can't fucking understand like anything about this moment actually if you forget that we're dealing with a president who thinks of himself as being on like a 90s television show um a few weeks ago he was speaking at a rally and he said this is from the new york times he invited his cheering audience to relive the night of the election with him, he imitated news anchors calling states in his favor and described his election as, quote, one of the greatest nights in the history of our country, but far less importantly, one of the greatest nights in the history of television. 
Which, of course, you know he means far more importantly. Exactly. And at a moment when the Republican Party, it has suddenly become entirely normal to talk about the state as a deep state in just the same sort of way that Fox Mulder would have in the totally. 90s. And where Alex Jones is no longer on the sidelines, but firmly aligned with the actual president. Conspiracism has weirdly become less of a, a view of power from a place of less power, this refracted view from the margins attempting to understand an ineffable power, to the actual language explicitly through which the powers that be understand themselves and operate. Which is why you need the deep state, because like, if the head of state is suspicious of the state, in order for the head of state to be wearing like a tinfoil hat, you have to have like another nested state for for the president to be terrified of. I wanted to hazard some sort of answer to that impossible question. Like, how did we move from like the end of history to the end of the end of history? What does it mean that we like have history again? And and I think Marissa was reluctant to sort of say it in those terms because it that makes it sound like things make sense, which they don't now. This is this is really speculative. But I wonder if part of the problem is like, as opposed to a kind of Cold War malaise that Marissa is describing in in her X-Files essay, where the Cold War was a war without event. Lots of stuff happened, but there were very few like actual events. At least from our perspective in the United States, history, history was happening to other people elsewhere. Exactly. In terms of the like imaginary of the like suburban American citizen. And then at some point... We could call it 9-11, we could call it the war on terror, culminating probably in the 2016 election. It's not just that, oh, history has come back, it's that it's been like rebooted with a vengeance. Like there's too much history now. Every single day, the experience of living under the Trump administration is like you check your phone and every morning you're like, this is going to be in the history books. And it's not just the president. Like it's there's there's a sense on the left, too in liberal media and and among leftists that we're like at a hyper historical moment in a way that produces both, I think, a kind of accelerationist optimism and and a, a sense of enormous paralysis. The 90s, we're talking about a view of, of history that like the X-Files might as well have been an anthology series, even though it wasn't like there's a serialized understanding of history mm-hmm. as kind of like restarting and cyclical. Whereas now we're living in like prestige history (laughs) where it's like ponderous and everything that happens takes on this like enormous dramatic value. And it's like this enormous weight that is given to every gesture, every needle drop, every cut, as opposed to Mulder doesn't even have tones of voice. There's just like a kind of like gray palette. But it's hard to think through how it is that we both have this more visceral and immediate relationship to history right now, which to me does seem clear. And also a president, as Andrea just pointed out, who more than any in history talks about politics through its representation in mass media which is almost the very sort of culture of the 1990s that we're saying that we've broken from in some way. So we've both broken from it and on some level are living through it in the most maximalist way possible. 
question. If we're going to like keep talking about historiography as if it like mapped one to one with television as the yeah. president prefers, <laughs> right. like I think you could talk about the reboot because like, of mm-hmm. course, X-Files did come back mm-hmm. and it wasn't the only thing. I mean, it is like a reboot of Donald Trump, right? I mean, when Mr. Big is introduced in Sex in the City, Carrie says he's like, the next Donald Trump or something like he was already solidified as as like a a cultural figure in the 90s and the 80s and in the 80s and it's no great secret that the the presidential ambitions came about as far as anyone can tell as a result of this man trying to become relevant again mm-hmm. after having faded into ever more self-referential reality TV Like he wanted to have like a primetime drama. One last thought that I have on this in terms of politics being consumed by and reduced to and thought through as televisuality. We've talked about that on the right a lot. But when I think about so many liberals who take in so many hours a day of of MSNBC, very much reducing the, the political economic and cultural and social complexities of what has brought us to this moment in this country to a drama involving Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's kind of a concession to Trump, right? Entering into his televisual logic where everything is first and foremost a greatest night in the history of TV and only secondarily like actually means anything in the world you know, kind of like letting him win the war, even if we're fighting individual battles to say like, no, the thing that he just said is ridiculous. Andrea, you've been, if not at near the center of a debate recently over something that oddly enough echoes some of these themes that we've been discussing of things in the year 2018 turning out to be precisely and overwhelmingly and painfully what they seem. And that is the matter of Avital Ronell, an NYU professor accused of severely harassing graduate students, and one graduate student in particular. And you wrote, and this is in the Chronicle of Higher Education, I believe, it is simply no secret to anyone within a mile of the German or complete departments at NYU that Avital is abusive. This is boring and socially agreed upon, like the weather, Stories about Avital's process are passed, like notes in class, from one student to the next. How she reprimanded her teaching assistants when they did not congratulate her for being invited to speak at a conference. How she requires that her students be available 24-7. How her preferred term for any graduate student who has fallen out of favor is the skunk. My question for you is, how is it that all this hid in plain sight if one could even say it was hiding at all. And how does this all, the the invocation of of queerness in particular as a defense against the application of the frames of Me Too, how does that touch on this question we've been discussing, which is this passage of this world of kind of funhouse mirrors from the 1990s into this moment of, if still very complicated, more, more clarity? It's a really good question. And the answer to it starts in the sort of maybe disappointing fact that academic departments structured around putatively or self-described left-leaning or radical or critical humanities practice 
suffer from the same structural problems and the same abuses of power that any such hierarchy does. So on, on a certain level, there's just like the medium at the end of the day is actually the message. People may spend their days talking about deconstructing a YouTube star or doing a Marxist analysis of a show on NBC or reading contemporary climate change literature or whatever it is. At a certain point, like form wins. In addition to this, one of the many depressing things that came out of the, the Avital scandal was watching, and you, you alluded to this, but watching respected academics, people that one might know, or like friends of friends, respected academics in their fields with monographs and reputations and lovely CVs, use the very critical thinking skills that they taught us in undergrad classes, graduate classes, that they teach each other at conferences and in academic journals, use those very critical thinking skills to mount a defense of someone for whom things looked worse the more that details came out, who were fighting a losing battle. I think it's pretty safe to say at this point, given all of the information that's come out about the case. And it was it was so striking to see these tools and techniques used for such a purpose. It, it felt massively cynical and like a, a breach of a, a, a very basic promise that we thought had been made to us. Using these critical tools that are supposed to elucidate, to obscure and obfuscate. Absolutely. And it was frightening to see the degree to which those tools may have always been intended to do this. So like, I think there was like a first wave of nausea that comes from seeing that deconstruction or Foucault or queer theory or whatever is being used to defend abusive behavior. And then there's a second wave of nausea that comes from the suspicion that this may actually be like the function of critical theory in the academy to shore up exploitation and abuse. That's like a scary thing. I'm not like endorsing that claim wholeheartedly, but I think that's like the question that got raised. There was this way that that the case was becoming a referendum on reading practices and a referendum on who got to claim what kinds of interpretive positions and on what authority. And in a way that was trying to claw back this whole scandal that had made its way into the pages of the New York Times to claw it back into this maybe like a different time in a different place, maybe the 1990s or something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the 90s is appropriate insofar as it's it's like a site in the history of theory where deconstruction was hitting the states hard. And I think it, it exposed like this lingering problem that no one had ever really answered about deconstructive reading practice, which was, to put it bluntly, like says who? That deconstruction had from the outset operated through cults of personality, that it wasn't just that like the method worked, it was that Derrida himself was the one saying it. There, and, and like he inspired acolytes and epigones and those inspired their own. And so when it when it came back around to, okay, uh, Avital Renal is writing in these emails to Nimrod Reitman, these super inflated terms of affection, I'm holding you, I want to kiss you, and all of these pet names. When this was claimed as like some sort of coded queer talk, I think it became clear very quickly that what constituted code and what that code meant 
was intended to operate according to a basically authoritarian model of interpretation. Like it doesn't mean what you say it means, what you like little person, what you graduate student, what you Nimrod, it doesn't mean what it looks like it means because I, the professor, tell you so. I think it really was as bald as that. Marissa and I have, have talked about this before, and I don't know if she would completely agree with that, but I think it, at very least, if, if one is cautious about endorsing that, I think like that's the question that was posed. It was like, at the end of the day, is the kind of interpretive practice that we engage in as humanity scholars ultimately something else than it means it because I say it means it? So the last thing I wanted to ask about is there is this very particular line of dissent against mainstream Me Too coming from queer academia. And I don't think that's very broadly known in the general public, but there are a lot of examples. You two have both touched on sort of criticisms of that dissent, but I wonder if there are not aspects of that dissent and more broadly aspects of queer theory that you do think are useful complications of or critiques of what we see in mainstream me too. I tend to be very hard on queer theory and, and queer studies and things that have queer in the name. <laughs> <laughs> but as much as I've complained about this in this interview, I think there is a real critique of the state that is really important and attention to the way that claims of injury get absorbed by the state, get recognized, get written into law. There's grounds to think about what the legal scholar Janet Halley has called governance feminism, which refers to the extent to which feminist principles have been absorbed into the state and used as a way of promoting basically the power of the police state. I think we can argue about like to what extent that's actually happened, but I think it, it has happened and it's important to be vigilant against that. I think the pitfalls of that is that there there can be an analytic flattening that happens in, in some cases for the sake of like a, a desire for a parsimonious analysis, but there can be a conflation of, as I've written elsewhere, of like the desire to punish with punishment itself. So like what happens is that the victim or the the complainant ends up being the subject that is supposed to bear all of the badness of a carceral police state as if like that were the secret hidden agenda of everyone who says hey i've been raped and i'm i'm doing a bit of a caricature but that is like this is it's an unfortunate result of that kind of analysis when the imaginary of vengeance is saturated by the carceral, it's not a crime to wish that someone would go to prison. There's a reason that feels like a satisfying conclusion, and I, we can like critique the conditions of that all we want, but there is a real desire to punish, and I think it's important to be able to countenance and think separately from the state how it feels to have been wronged and to be mm -hmm. seeking vengeance or redress or or some some other kind of satisfaction. I think that's really astute. And at the same time, this feeling of justified vengeance is not necessarily very different from the public sentiment that has played such an important role in the rise of mass incarceration in recent decades, because I think on the left, we tend to think of mass incarceration as having been fueled by racist crime hysteria, 
when there's been a lot of important historical research showing that many people had a very intimate relationship to a very real rise in the murder rate, for example, that fueled people to understandably want to put people away in prison for a long time. I don't think there's any easy answer here because part of what I think we're all trying to tease out is uh, these gaps between the way that we're accustomed to articulating political feelings and the actual possibilities for seeking redress or seeking justice could look like. And adding on to Andrea's point, during the entire kind of like moment of Me Too, I've felt over and over again this sense of, holy shit, like, the literal reaction that you're that you're being called to, right, of of saying yes, me too, <laughs> um, and at the same time, um, have felt at moments like, no, that's not how it was for me at all. Like X experience that I had doesn't fit into that logic, and I don't totally want my own personal experiences to be completely rescripted by a narrative in which in some maybe kind of strong readings of Me Too, all like erotic relationships that exist that involve a power differential are always already corrupted or uniquely corrupted. Which is sort of a throwback to a certain position from second wave feminism that consensual sex is impossible under patriarchy. Exactly, exactly. And I I imagine you feel the same way, Andrea, that like when you kind of like study this stuff historically and then suddenly you have like some like new totally unfamiliar iteration of wars over sex where you might find yourself positioned really differently than you imagine you would have been the first time around or something like that it's like a little mind-bending yeah absolutely I do think it's important to say that, like, it's very important that we have a conversation about the conflation of justice with the carceral and about what constitutes justice. That's that's important in many cases, though, like the the retribution that we're talking about is is like fairly minor. Like it's it's interesting that we jump so quickly you know, when a professor has abused a student, you inevitably get a think piece like, so what, you want to shoot him? But also it's like, so the classroom is supposed to be this like completely sterile place where we like don't treat each other as humans and we're just like cogs in a machine. And like the speed with which the straw man of like total annihilation of the erotic within any given workplace, the speed with which that straw man like presents itself is telling. There seems to be a disconnect a bit between this Me Too debate that tends to play out around powerful people on the one hand and these hyperbolic defenses of them that warn against punishments that aren't even on the table in most cases, and a reality that well before Me Too, people convicted of sex offenses have for quite a long time been one of the fastest growing proportions of the prison population nationwide. So there's simultaneously persistent impunity for sexual assault, I think, in all ranks of American life, and a form of mass incarceration that's taken root that has nothing to do with Harvey Weinstein, but has to do with the ordinary people put in handcuffs and walking into court. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, I think one thing that we've seen in recent weeks in a few different instances is this kind of, I almost want to say like a 
conservative appropriation of anti-carceral language where, for example, the forced resignation of Ian Baruma, the editor of the New York Review of Books, for publishing a bad and fucked up first person essay by a serial sexual assailant was defended by some as some version of the kind of witch hunt argument. And I think that it should be clear to us that that's like a very reactionary logic. And yet that's what we're hearing. I think the way that that language has become really a tool of the right became then even more obscenely clear during the Kavanaugh hearings where we had to keep saying Kavanaugh's not on trial. This is a job interview. The question is whether he remains an extremely powerful appeals court judge or a Supreme Court (laughs) justice. Lindsey Graham said something like, I think it was Lindsey Graham, said like, if everyone's going to be held to like a standard where dumb things they did 35 years ago, and by dumb things, of course, we mean like boyish indiscretions, then like there'll be no men in the government or something, which is ultimately, I mean, like we should say this is true. Bracket for a moment the fact that prisons are bad. There is no prison large enough to hold all of the offenders of patriarchy. It's not like a practical solution to put all the men in prison. It's a Borgesian map territory problem at that point. Exactly. We're already living in the prison. This doesn't solve like the larger political ethical problem. But like one thing we might say is that this actually isn't the worst thing Kavanaugh has ever done. It's just the only thing that might prevent him from actually getting a seat on the court. As to like what what kinds of tools queer theory might give us for thinking about something like a Kavanaugh case, which is important to say is is really different than a lot of the stuff that we're talking about with Me Too. It's not a workplace thing. It involves teenagers. And it's like the actual behavior that's alleged is, is actually more severe, quote unquote, than a lot of the stuff, not all of it, but a lot of the stuff that has gone under the name of Me Too. I think, uh, you know, there's there's this moment in Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, which everyone will remember for years, in which she said, someone asked her, I can't remember which senator, maybe it was Feinstein asked her, what's the thing you remember most? And Blasey Ford says, um, indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter, the uproarious laughter. And she says something about the fact that they're laughing with each other and not at her. And Lily Loughborough had a really great piece about this in Slate, about like the way that that homosocial bonding works. And I thought that was really excellent. The thing that queer theory might help us add to this is that like part of the reason it was not a memorable event is that like something queer theory has taught us and taught us very well is that like sex is not usually about sex. Like, I think that gives you like a really interesting way to start thinking about not like, oh, he wasn't really trying to sexually assault her because of course he was, but it was like, the truth is, is that was probably pretty incidental to whatever he was doing, which was having a good time, which was flexing a kind of proto-patriarchal muscles in the absence of an authority figure, their teenagers, they were probably going to go to a party later. Like there's a whole ecology 
and very like ordinary ecology that this behavior fits into. And it's one thing queer theory can help us with in a, in a way that it was, was, I think, a much needed corrective to say the 70s feminist mm-hmm. picture of the sexual assailant or the rapist is that like, he's not a terrible person. He's a deeply ordinary one. He's like a fine guy. And there's like a way to understand attempted rape, probably repeated attempted rape over like many years of many women who he like could not have cared less about. There's a way that those acts, which feel like they summon up a kind of eventness that has to be addressed. There's a way that those acts were stitched into the ordinary, awkward, weird everyday life of trying to figure out how to inhabit manhood as like this elite white kid in an elite white community. Which explains why it might be indelible in her hippocampus, but not his. Exactly. And like, there are so many girls who were at that school who this happened to or who something like this mm-hmm. happened to and who don't really remember it. Like there's a, I'm, I'm like getting a little emotional. There's like a, there's like a real pathos to how ordinary these things are and like both the power and the disadvantage of someone like Blasey Ford is that she can take on I mean for a moment the Pentecostal fires like descended on her and she was like speaking for some quote-unquote everyone even though of course she's like some rich white lady who like has a big fancy house that she just remodeled or whatever there was this moment where she could dramatize what is, for the most part, undramatic in most people's lives. And that made it legible. That meant that even whoever, like fucking, like Fox News contributors could be like, oh, wow, that was, you know, Megyn Kelly was like, oh my gosh, that testimony. It became legible and then immediately receded because like what we can't hold in public discourse is the ordinariness of the thing. Marissa and I were talking about Kavanaugh And um, I think Marissa brought up that he's been compared to Trump. It it was a Trumpian performance of like whiny male rage. But then we started thinking that maybe really Kavanaugh is less of a Trump and more of a Mr. Big. Like just this sense of rage being expected to like inhabit just like a modicum of humanity was like too much to ask. And I said to Marissa, you can imagine an episode in which Carrie like stumbles upon Big's yearbook and there's like boofing and there's devil's triangle and she asks him, what does boofing mean? And Mr. Big is like, oh, it's it's just an inside joke. You wouldn't care. And like then Carrie spends the whole episode agonizing about like, what is boofing? What is the devil's triangle? And, you know, the other girls have like other encounters in their plot in their like B and C plot lines that are like also have to do with like weird sexual slang. And, you know, she writes her column about are all New Yorkers having sex in code? We get shots of like average ordinary New Yorkers defining random pieces of slang that the writers for Sex in the City made up because, of course, they could never actually talk about anything real. And then by the end of the episode, like Big and Carrie are out at like a gallery opening or like a fancy restaurant after 10 o'clock. She's like having an attitude. And so Mr. Big says, what? 
finally, as if trying to get her to like finally tell him what is wrong. <laughs> and Carrie says, it's just your yearbook. I just like, I just, I asked Miranda what boofing was. And he like <laughs> slams his fork down on the table and like yells that it's about anal sex in the restaurant. And everyone stares at them and Carrie is mortified and he storms off to his penthouse and Carrie spends like an hour walking around the darkened carless, somehow carless streets of New York, <laughs> like thinking about what she did wrong and then ends the episode by going to his penthouse, knocking on the door and apologizing for prying too much. That's so believable to me. And it says, I think everything you need to know about Brett Kavanaugh and everything you need to know about Sex in the City at once. Well, Andrea Longchu and Marissa Brostoff, thank you very much. Thanks thank you for, for having, having us. us. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is huge. Huge.